0: Gracious Father, uh, we truly owe all to you, all to your Son, Jesus Christ, uh, all to the Holy Spirit, three in one. Uh, Father, because uh, in eternity past, you saw fit to address the the problem that would be had as a result of sin uh, and that separation that takes place because of sin. Uh, We know that your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, as he said, is the way, the truth, and the life, that no one comes to the Father except through him, uh, that uh, we owe him our all uh, because he took our place. He took your wrath upon our sin upon himself, the one who is the sinless Son of God. Uh, and so, Father, we thank you for that. We rejoice in that this morning. And as we consider how you showed yourself, uh, how your presence is seen throughout the scriptures, as we take a look into the New Testament today, Uh, And ultimately, uh, that is Jesus Christ, uh, uh, the the Son incarnate, God with us, Emmanuel, uh, that you would guide our time this morning. May it uh, reinforce, uh, uh, invigorate uh, our our love for you as we see all that Jesus Christ uh, is and has done, uh, Father. And we pray all these things in his name. Amen. Well, as we did last uh, time, we're going to uh, begin by uh, launching off from Ephesians chapter three, verse twelve, uh, as we consider this uh, multi-part part series, the presence of God. That is a, if you want to call it a mini-series here in the book of Ephesians, uh, because of uh, seeing what Paul framed in verse twelve of chapter three, where he says, "In whom," speaking of Christ. We have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. Uh, and last time in part one, we took a look at the omnipresence of God, the fact that God is everywhere present in fullness, uh, that he's not stretched thin and you know, you know, uh, is somehow uh, you know, lacking or you know, at his end when it comes to his fullness uh, being exhibited everywhere, uh, every place that exists, past, present, future, eternity. No matter where it is, God is fully present. And we distinguish between uh, his omnipresence and his actual uh, manifest presence, as we saw in the Old Testament. And we looked at the garden uh, as Adam and Eve had the opportunity to walk with God in the garden. Uh, And then what happened as a direct result of their disobedience to God uh, and them choosing to eat of the one tree that God told them not to eat of. Uh, And so, at that point, they knew the difference between good and evil, uh, and that sinful act uh, made it so that God had to drive them out of the garden, drive them out of his presence, because man's sin did not change who God is. Man's sin changed man's relationship with the God who is holy, holy, holy. Uh, And we took a look at some examples as Others, you know, throughout the Old Testament came into the the actual presence of God and what their response was. Uh, Moses in the burning bush, you know, fell to his face because he stood on holy ground, uh, because it was holy because of the presence of God himself in that bush. Uh, And then we consider the tabernacle and how God's presence came down into the Holy of Holies and then eventually in Solomon's temple. Uh, And we saw how God's presence was exhibited through a pillar uh, of a cloud by day and a a pillar of fire by night uh, so that the people would know that God was with them. Uh, And so as we get to the end of, uh, you know, the Old Testament, we know that in um, 586 BC, the the temple itself, um, the one that Solomon um, had built, uh, was destroyed uh, and uh, then in uh, Ezra and Nehemiah, uh, we find that uh, this the temple is rebuilt. Uh, but many that saw the the glory of the previous temple uh, realized that this second temple, even though it was rebuilt, uh, was not as spectacular uh, as the original. And part of that is is because uh, there is uh, in that second temple no mercy seat. Uh, there's no place for God on the Day of Atonement to come down because the Ark of the Covenant is missing. Uh, And so that brings us into those 400 years of silence between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Uh, And today we have the privilege of looking at the New Testament and how God has shown his presence uh, to us in his word through Jesus Christ. Uh, And that brings us to our very first point because after 400 years of silence, where uh, the prophets had uh, finally stopped speaking uh, and God was going to change how he exhibited his presence from it being, you know, his glory filling a man-made temple uh, to the Son of God. Stepping down out of heaven, taking on flesh, not ceasing to be God in one iota, some of his godhood was veiled so that man would, not, would be able to be in the presence of Almighty God. Um, we'll see some of that worked out this morning and some of the texts we'll go to. But we, we need to understand and we need to see that God shows his presence in the New Testament, this change by uh, giving us the incarnation itself. Uh, that's Christ taking on flesh, and it's the greatest expression of God's presence with man on earth apart from the garden itself in the Old Testament, where, where God is walking with Adam and Eve in the garden. And that takes us to John chapter 1, verse 14, where it says, And the word, and this is speaking of Jesus Christ, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. See, we, we obviously are looking back to this event in the first century of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, walking and talking and teaching and challenging, uh, you know, everyone that he came in contact with, challenging the religious leaders because of their religiosity and their self-righteousness, but also challenging others to see that Jesus himself was God incarnate. He is the Son of God. He is the Son of Man. He is the Messiah, the Redeemer, the one who came. Uh, And that is the glory that we see, God incarnate. You know, there is no cloud coming down to show the presence of God because God himself in the Son is present in an earthly body to show the world who God is in a very powerful and real way. And if John chapter 1, you move over to John chapter 2, and I encourage you to be turning with me here as we we take this journey together as well. John chapter 2, if you take a look there at verses 18 and following, Jesus, after just cleansing the temple, um, you know, this is right on the heels of his, his first miracle of turning the water into wine at the wedding at Canaan. And here Jesus comes into the temple and he sees what is going on in his father's house. He sees that people are are abusing the access they have to it for their own personal profit. And so he comes in and he cleanses the temple uh, because he has a zeal for his father's house. He has a zeal for the glory of God. He has a zeal for God to be glorified through uh, everything that man does to come into his presence. They gave him a righteous anger. Jesus didn't stumble and fall here. He didn't, you know, accidentally, you know, delve into an angry attitude and, and, you know, sin. He did not because he is the sinless son of God. It is possible to have a righteous anger. And Jesus Christ had that because he had a zeal for his father's house and for his father's glory. And so the Jews, as you see there in verse 18, as we pick up the text and going through verse 22, were wanting to know what sort of sign that they, they could see, uh, you know, that Jesus was able to do these things. So it says, so the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it took, or it has taken 46 years to build the temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When, therefore, he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scriptures and the word that Jesus had spoken. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. See, Jesus was communicating a beautiful truth to the people, and they could not see it. Because they were only thinking in the physical realm, only thinking of that physical temple, only thinking of what man can accomplish and not what the Son of God could accomplish. Because they didn't want to see him as the Son of God. They didn't want to see him as the Messiah who came to deliver them uh, from their sins. Because they didn't, or Jesus did not fit their profile. They wanted, you know, the Messiah to come in and free them from the bondage of, of Rome. But that's not what Jesus came to do. You know, if you look in the Old Testament, did Jesus and God and the spirit, you know, remove enemies and remove those that had oppression over the, the the Israelites. Yes, he did. But here in the New Testament, Jesus was, you know, addressing the greatest need that mankind has. And that is being made right with God. Something that even today mankind needs to hear. And Jesus is talking about his own body being the temple. And we're going to see this parallel because again, the presence of God isn't coming down into the temple. Matter of fact, you know, the temple they said it took 46 years to, to make still isn't done yet. You know, when they said this. Matter of fact, the temple doesn't even get finished until about four years before it's destroyed again in 66 AD. Because Herod ends up doing some alterations to it to, to bring it back up to uh, what it was in Solomon's day. Uh, and so the temple really even isn't finished. And here they are thinking about this, this earthly building when Jesus is saying, no, I'm talking about the spiritual body, you know, why I've come. Because I'm the temple. I am the one who is going to be able to bring you into the presence of the Father. Not this building any longer, because remember this, the second temple, there's no Ark of the Covenant, there's no mercy seat, there's no God's glory coming down. Instead, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is showing himself. The thing is, is they wanted some sign from Jesus that He had the authority to actually cleanse the temple. You know it, it would be, you know, like me, if the temple existed today and I saw people were in the temple and went in and drove people out of the temple. Who are you? That's what they wanted to know. Who gave you the authority? We're the ones that are over this. We're the religious leaders. We're the ones that, that make sure people are doing what they're supposed to do when they come in to worship God. But see, the thing is, they weren't wor- worshiping the one true God. They were worshiping a God of their own making, a God that, you know, allowed them to, to live as if their self-righteousness qualified them to be in the presence of God. Now, I mean, it, everyone was that way because there are those that did know God and feared him, and we have examples of that in the New Testament as well. But see, they wanted to know why he had the authority to cleanse the temple. That's the slide you're supposed to have seen there. The presence of God in the New Testament. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And so they still wanted to have some sort of of sign. You know, they wanted something to, to show that Jesus is who he says he is. You know, why should we believe him? Why should we see him as separate from who we are? And so, Jesus, uh, in the book of Matthew, chapter 12, as he's foreshadowing his coming death, talks about the sign of Jonah. And it's a, a pretty profound passage as we consider what Jesus is saying here. And I'll pick up in verse 38. It says, Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. Because, you know, if they see a sign, that's going to change everything. Well, actually, it's not, because they have a heart problem. They they want us to believe in the physical. Jesus is talking about the spiritual. Verse 39, But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks us for a sign, but no sign will be given to you except the sign of the prophet Jonah, which they would have been very familiar with in understanding this. He says, for just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, which is an allusion to Christ being buried, you know, in the grave for three days and then rose on the third day, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Verse 41, and this is where this... Condemnation of the religious leaders, those seeking this sign, those, you know, part of this adulterous generation that Jesus is saying, which, you know, he's not making friends here. He's insulting them. He is, he is hitting them right to, between the eyes, right to the core of their heart as to who they are and not seeing Jesus, but instead wanting some sort of sign when they have the Son of God right there before them, physically present. The presence of God incarnate. Verse 41 says, the men of Nineveh will rise at judgment with this generation and condemn it. So he's saying, look back to Jonah. You know, I called Jonah as my prophet to go to the city of Nineveh, a Gentile nation, to call them to repentance because their evil was so great before God. And he chose to have mercy, chose to have grace upon them through the message of Jonah. And so he's saying that generation is going to rise up and condemn those that Jesus was speaking to. Why? For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, someone greater than Jonah is here. Then verse 42 goes on. The queen of the south or the queen of Sheba will rise up at judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she from, came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, someone greater than Solomon is here. See, they were so spiritually blind that they could not see the very presence of God in human form in the Son of God, Jesus Christ. And and what he is telling them is is that Jonah, the Queen of Sheba, are all going to rise up and condemn this generation because you did not see because you are spiritually blind, blinded by your own self-righteousness that you cannot see, that you need to repent, that you need to ask God for forgiveness to be made right with him. They could not see the Son of God. They could not see the presence of God right there with them. Which takes us a few chapters ahead to Matthew chapter 17. Because as we consider Jesus' inner circle... And we consider the Mount of Transfiguration. This is where Jesus, for a brief moment, shows those who are closest to him as he pulls back the veil for them to see the glory of the Son of God. Just for a moment, just a glimpse... And notice the, what they see in these moments here as we begin reading in chapter 17, verse 1. It says, And after six days Jesus took with him Peter and James and John his brother and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him, And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Okay, there's Peter being proactive. Then notice what it says in verse 5. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. So this is the Father doing like he did in the Old Testament, coming down in a cloud, a cloud that that surrounded them, that came over that, that mountain. And he spoke, telling these disciples who this is. In case you didn't wonder, or in case you did wonder, is what I meant to say. This is my son in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. And notice their reaction. Verse 6. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. See, these disciples came into the presence of God the Father, God Almighty. And here they had Jesus one who had been teaching them and, and leading them and you know, showing them that what the, the religious leaders of the day were doing was misleading them. And he, and he pulled back the veil so that they could see the glory of the sun as well. And when they came into that presence, they fell on their faces and were terrified because this is what happens when sinful man comes into the presence of holiness. We are undone. We feel ashamed. We cannot look God in the eyes because we're sinful in the presence of holiness. But notice what Jesus does. This is a a beautiful thing that he does for his disciples. Look at verse 7. It says, But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. See, I think that there's a twofold thing here because obviously, you know, the the father was no longer on the mountain and, and Elijah and Moses had gone back up into heaven and only Jesus was there. But he's the one that told them not to fear. And when they opened their eyes, all they saw was Jesus. See, at that point, Jesus was not the same any longer because remember, they got a chance to see behind the veil. They got to see the glory of the Son of God. They got to see the glory of God the Father, making the pronouncement, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. So in their minds, it had to be crystallized. It had to be seared into their conscience that this is Jesus Christ. This is the Son of God. This is the Messiah. We've seen the glory of God. We've seen the presence of God in a very powerful way. And when you have seen that, when your your mind and your heart and your soul have been transformed by the blood of Jesus Christ, all you see is Jesus. And he's so beautiful to see. And the thing is, you need to remember that the religious leaders could not see Jesus as he is, the son of God, God incarnate. You, some 2,000 years later, have had the privilege of having your spiritual eyes open to see Jesus as he is, the Son of God, the Redeemer, the one who is alive forevermore. Then flipping back to John chapter 17, as we consider another segment as Jesus uh, starts out his high priestly prayer in John 17, where he talks about sharing the glory with the Father in eternity past, And he just got done telling his disciples to take heart. I have overcome the world. And he goes into his high priestly prayer. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So here's Jesus Christ, you know, in his final moments before his betrayal, his arrest, his crucifixion, his His burial and his resurrection. Coming to the Father and saying, Father, I've done everything that I was supposed to do to its fullness. Glorify me with the glory that I shared with you before the world was. The God eternal. Think about this. This is the presence in which you have been granted access with confidence to come into. Like I said, this is no mere mortal. You know, and as we think about the events of this past week and thinking about uh, the queen passing away, it doesn't even compare to be able to have access to the queen of England as it is to be in the presence of Almighty God. Then Luke chapter 23 brings us close to the point which Jesus gives up his spirit. And this is Jesus' promise to the thief on the cross. And I want you to look at it in light of Ephesians chapter 3, verse 12. He said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly, I say to you today... You will be with me in paradise. Does Jesus sound like someone who doesn't know what's going to happen next? What he was telling the thief is exactly what Paul tells us in Ephesians because it is the same message, because it's the message from God Almighty that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. See, the thief Even in his last moments of life, seeing his sinfulness, repenting and trusting in Jesus Christ at that moment, as he's dying, nailed to a cross next to the Savior, Jesus is saying, guess what? You have boldness and access with confidence into the very throne room of God today because you've trusted me as your Savior. Because it's in Christ alone that we have salvation Because the thief on the cross had no time to do any good works. He couldn't go and do something because he was nailed to a cross. His very lifeblood leaving him. Because salvation is in Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ is the only one who can bring us into the presence of Almighty God forever. He is the one who qualifies us. Because Jesus' death would render the Jerusalem temple obsolete. See, there's no need for a temple made with human hands anymore because Jesus is that temple. He came for the purpose of offering himself on that that altar. He became that sacrifice. There was no blood of, of animals that was going to qualify anyone to enter the presence of God apart from Jesus Christ's sinless sacrifice. All of the Old Testament saints looking forward to that moment in time, all of us looking back, that moment in time that's why he is the once for all final sacrifice that's why even though there was no uh you know ark of the covenant and the holy of holies no mercy seat for the priest on the day of atonement to sprinkle the blood for the forgiveness of sins jesus christ himself became that mercy seat he became that blood that was sprinkled See, the mercy seat, as we take a look at it in the book of Hebrews, by definition is actually propitiation. And who do we know that is our propitiation for our sins? Who is the one who appeased God's wrath on our sin and reconciles us to God the Father? Guess who? Jesus Christ. No one else. So he became that mercy seat for us. He became that sacrifice for us. We read about that in Romans chapter 3, verses 24 and 25. Jesus became the atonement. That was the ultimate day of atonement. Not the once a year thing, because guess what? It doesn't have to happen again. Jesus does not need to die on the cross again. The reason he has risen is because he accomplished what he came to do, to be the final Atonement, the final sacrifice, the final removal of sin for all who believe. That's why the temple tore, or the temple veil tore in two. Matthew 27, beginning in verse 50. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And the earth shook and the rocks were split, the tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were uh, with him kept watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake, earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, truly, this was the Son of God. See, the thing is, it takes an earthquake to crack our stone-cold, dead hearts for us to see Jesus as he is, to see Jesus as the Son of God. And see, Jesus makes the temple obsolete because that temple veil has torn in two. So we have access into the Holy of Holies, into the very presence of God because of Christ. He is the one who gives us entrance into the presence of God. And that is no small thing, church family. Don't think of, you know, as we think about the fact that we're taking communion today, and, you know, again, it's not by chance that we're at this point. I didn't even realize it was going to be communion Sunday when I wrote this sermon, because it, it was all sermons put together and split up last week. This is no small thing. You have been granted access before the Father. Not in judgment, because there's now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. This is access with boldness, with confidence, because of Christ. He's granted you an audience. He's given us confidence to enter the holy places, as it tells us in Hebrews chapter 10. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that has, he had opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. That's what Jesus Christ has accomplished. He has brought us in through the curtain, through his flesh, because he is that atonement. He is the final priest, as it tells us in Hebrews chapter 7. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, Why is it indeed fitting? Because only Jesus Christ can do what Jesus Christ did. No earthly priest could do this because an earthly priest had to first offer a sacrifice for his own sins before he could offer a sacrifice for the sins of the people. He was still a sinful vessel in need of forgiveness, of salvation. But not our great high priest, it says, he is holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like the high priest to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins, and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered himself up. That's Jesus Christ. That's what he's done for you today. So how should this inform our lives today? Well, I appeal to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Because as believers today in 2022, in a culture that hates God, that hates his morals, hates his law, we are the light in darkness. We are the salt that the world needs to to experience. They need to see Jesus Christ through us because there's a day coming where Jesus Christ is once again going to make a grand appearance. But this time it's not going to be to offer himself as a sacrifice because he's done that already. The next time he's coming, he's coming to conquer. He is the king. And he is coming. Verse 26 says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. That's Almighty God. Why did he do that? Verse 29 so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. He is the source of your life in Christ Jesus, whom God made our wisdom and our righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And that's what we should be doing today, because man will continue to boast in his own, you know, Excellence, boast in his own accomplishments, will boast and always bring it back to himself. Even the religious leaders of Jesus' day did that. They were self-righteous. They were righteous in their own eyes because they compared themselves to everyone else around them, all those that were under them. But see, that's not going to be the comparison. God's not going to look at each one of you in this room and then go look at the people that are incarcerated in jail who have committed murder and, and done heinous things. God's not going to look at Adolf Hitler and look at you and say, well, you're nowhere near as bad as Adolf Hitler. Because in God's eyes, and this is a hard truth, you are just as evil and sinful as Adolf Hitler. Because one sin, just one, remember Adam and Eve, just one, separates you from the presence of God forever, apart from trust and faith in Jesus Christ alone. That's why we celebrate communion this morning. It's a time for us to remember that sacrifice. It's for us to remember what Jesus Christ did when he came. He was the presence of God in human form. No more cloud coming down on a temple. The very glory of God was present in human form. Veiled, yes, but to some, they got a chance to see. And they were never the same. So my prayer for each one of you here this morning is that you know Jesus Christ, that he is the one who has granted you access, not your good works, not your, your faith in coming to church, because it is Jesus alone who saves. So as we take communion this morning, we're going to be spending a few moments in reflective prayer to prepare our hearts to take this meal in a manner worthy of Jesus Christ, the one who went and tore that temple veil in two through his death, his burial, and his resurrection because he became the temple. He became the atonement. He became the redeemer. He became the reconciler. He became the propitiation because he appeased God's wrath for your sin upon himself so that you could be reconciled to God, that you could be in the presence of God Almighty forever and ever and ever. Eternity.